Welcome to the Ignite Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bell. Today, I'm joined by Atul Raghunathan, the CTO for Hyperbound, a really exciting Team Ignite portfolio company, a uh, little, little commercial for Team Ignite. So would love to uh, get an intro for you for the audience and, and then take it from there. Of course, yeah. I'm Atul Raghunathan. I'm the current CTO at Hyperbound, right? We're a recent Y Combinator company. And before Hyperbound, I was working at Meta Ads and on Instagram's algorithm. So lots of cool stories from there. And uh, I was getting my master's in machine learning from Carnegie Mellon. Wow, super impressive background. But so walk me through kind of how you came up with the idea for Hyperbound and what's that kind of origin story? Oh, yeah, the origin story of Hyperbound is great. So we were working on a different product in um, in the sales space. So we're working on like a post-sales product that would still develop the same type of customer intelligence uh, for upsells. And my co-founder and I were trying to sell the product that we had just built. Um, so what happened then was that we were sending out like hundreds of personalized LinkedIn Connect messages and emails between ourselves. Um, I think one week we even hit like a thousand a piece. So at a certain point I was like, I want to get back to like, you know, working on the product. I just spent all day and all night just like writing, drafting and sending these sales emails. I just can't do this anymore. So I told my co-founder like, hey, you you stick with what you're doing. I just like, I, I cannot continue like this. So I'm going to like figure out a way to like automate this. this. <laughs> exactly. I'm an engineer, you know, my, my yeah, brain yeah. doesn't work like That's so funny because <laughs> so, I've done, so I've done a little bit of everything in my career and I've, I've done a lot of sales and a lot of venture capital is basically sales. And, um, you know, I remember just writing those personalized emails one after the other and even doing cold calls. Right. And you know, the, the, oh, yeah. the hardest part about sales is just finding the person that has like the bant, you know, the, mm -hmm. the budget authority need and timing. Right. And exactly. But talk, yeah. Talk me through more. Yeah. 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 So, um, we decided to have a little competition, you know, so like <laughs> co-founder Shiharsha was going to continue sending out, uh, like hand personalized like messages to everyone. And I was going to see if there was a way that I could automate this and get like a volume play together. Uh, so I built a bot. It only took me around three hours for the first draft of this. So I, I built like a LinkedIn bot that would go through, like read people's LinkedIn profiles, right? Use GPT and use some like, like custom code that I had like put together uh, to write them a personalized email to see if they were, you know, free to meet for either a user interview, uh, depending on who they were, or free to meet for like a customer call. Um, and it was working like really well. Like the outputs of this were like basically as good as what I could do in the one minute that I would spend, like writing down like furiously a really short LinkedIn connect message. Uh, so I got greedy with using it, right? Like it was working really well. I was getting some responses. So I was like, okay, well, like, 10 email, like 10 messages like, an okay, hour. Like, let me just, what like, was the kind of the increase in response rate that you're like, you know, when you would go personalize it, you know, a hundred a day, what was your response rate? And then now you're using some, some sort of AI tool to personalize, like, was it the same response rate? Was there a lift? Yeah. yeah. So the response rate went up because the AI was able to notice like more features about the person than I was in like my cursory glance, right? Because I was only spending a couple seconds on each one because I had so many more to get to. Um, the AI yeah, was actually able to like read more interesting things and like drop them in the connect message. I was like, oh, I didn't even notice that. And then I like looked down and there it is in their experience. Um, so that was cool. But what happened at the end of the week, right? Um, is I got banned from LinkedIn because uh, I was sending <laughs> too many of these messages. As one uh, does, but yeah. <laughs> exactly. But uh, when I got unbanned from LinkedIn, I had like 60 messages waiting for me of people that responded to my reach outs. And my co-founder had five. Mm. Uh, exactly. 60 so, out of you how know, many? Uh, let's see. I think I reached out to like a little over 2,000 people that week. Okay. Yeah. Right, so yeah, yeah. you're talking, you know, close to something like 3% response rate, something like that. Yeah, exactly. It, it's not a not a great response rate by any means, but that's more uh, to do with the quality of our prospecting uh, than, than it was. Because like my co-founder was getting an even lower response rate um, with the messages that he was hand personalizing. So, you know, that also taught us the importance of uh, pre-qualification, you know, good prospecting, all that. Uh, yeah, it was, that. that's the origin story. 
Nice. Well, tell me, uh, tell me more about the process because you you came through Y Combinator, which is you know the world famous accelerator. Um, tell me more about the process where where you guys decided you had this you had this idea, um, and you started you were prospecting for Hyperbound before you got into YC, or was this a different different company? This is a different company. So. At the core, right, we both knew that we wanted to apply some of the fundamentals of the ad technology world into sales tech, right? We wanted to figure out like ways that we could develop the same type of intelligence that like the Instagram ad algorithm has, for example, um, and apply that into like targeting sales material better. We figured that the post-sales side would be easier because a lot of sales nowadays, especially in B2B, like the majority of revenue for some companies really comes from upsells, uh, mm. not like net new sales. Yeah, you kind of so land we and expand, focusing, yeah. Exactly, it's a really common strategy nowadays, right? So we were focusing on that end of things uh, originally, but when we built this product, like that LinkedIn bought for ourselves, right? And we were just like, you know, talking to other YC founders at the at one of our like back retreat events. We were just like casually mentioning this and they're like, I'll pay you for this right now. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, wait, maybe, you know, maybe it's worth considering. So wait, so you guys, got, so you had an idea, you got into the program with a different idea? Yes. So we got, so th this is the fun part about YC, right? Yeah. They, they pick founders, not an idea. Yeah. Uh, unless your, unless your idea is like, so what they actually care about in the interview, this is a great tip for listeners who plan on applying yeah. to like, yeah. right? what they care about is the way that you vet your ideas not the actual idea itself, right? Mm. So they'll they ask you- They want you to, so walk me through your thinking. How are you thinking about this idea? How did you decide on it? Things like that. Exactly, right? Not only just how you decided on it, like who did you talk to, right? Like, what customers are you talking to? How mm. many customer interviews did you do? Like what was your most interesting insights from the customer interviews, right? And then um, what happens is that a lot of people think of a really cool solution of a problem that they personally face and then they end up just going, sitting in a silo, building it, and finding out that no one wants to buy it, or that there's no commercial use case for it. And a lot of those products make great open source products. They they make like great, uh, you know, non venture scale businesses. Yeah. Um, but when you're building a venture scale business, you need to be like in lockstep with your customer, and that's what YC cares about. Um, yeah. So when we applied to YC, we were applying with a customer service idea originally. So this was like almost like 12 idea iterations ago, like <laughs> even way before the customer success product, right? We were like, it was like a customer support thing. Um, it was to help with phone calls, um, like analytics from phone calls and also making the phone call experience a little bit better uh, by like targeting some of the the content in the phone call. Yeah. But yeah, like we, we pivoted so much those first couple of weeks and <laughs> YC was just so supportive. Like, I don't think we would have landed on such a like an idea that was so like pleasurable to sell as this one uh, if it wasn't for the YC events where we got to speak with the group partners, where we got to speak mm. with other founders in the space. Like this is one of those things. It's like a network effect yeah. um, type stumbling and we're very, very grateful for it. Yeah. What I love about MarTech and I spent years both running demand gen teams and um, you know, lifecycle marketing, email marketing. I did email marketing at an email marketing company, vertical response back in the day. Um, and what I love about MarTech is that you use the thing to sell the thing. And so you dog food and there's this like virtuous cycle that happens where you're literally <laughs> using, you're getting high on your own supply, right? You're basically using your software to sell more of your software. And then when you reach out to mm -hmm. people, you're like, yeah, I use my software to find you and, and sell to you. And don't you want to do the same? So it's kind of, it, it, it just reinforces. Because at the end of the day, we're just building stuff and selling stuff to each other. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's what companies do. And so you got to be good at one of those things. Uh, everything else is kind of a, you know, a, a cost. But um, yeah, talk me through the, um, talk us through the business, how, how it's going. Like, what's the... Uh, where you're getting traction and who your ideal customer is and you know anybody listening that you know runs a b2b SaaS software company trying to acquire customers what they should know about you yeah so let me tell tell our listeners a little bit about the product and uh, then i'll get into like 
who it's for exactly. But yeah, Hyperbound was essentially created from our vision about what the next generation of email marketing should look like. So currently with high volume sales and marketing emails, uh, we're using templates to reach out to a group of people, right? They might be segmented templates, but at the end of the day, they're templates. And coming up with a template that gets people to convert is really hard because each buyer has like very different preferences. What someone thinks is the best sales email ever is someone's like idea of a nightmare. Like, why did you send this horrible sales email to me? Uh, so there's actually a lot of information in the buyer's current experience and the background, and we can kind of predict how they're going to react. Um, so it's that type of intelligence that we really wanted to bring into this space so we can inform the ideal strategy on how to reach out, right? Uh, so with that in mind, right, like our ideal customer are B2B SaaS companies, typically those with over 50 employees um, and with those who already have an outbound pipeline, right? Those who are already sending outbound emails and are looking to optimize it uh, to try to double their response rates to like figure out, you know, why their current outbound strategy yeah, is what, what is the What is the typical lift? So you go into a company, you run a pilot. Um... And they've been doing this already, right? So what's the pitch mm -hmm. to them to use your software? Is it better response rates? It saves your SDRs time, you know, all of the above. Yeah. 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 So uh, it's better response rates at the end of the day is uh, like what gets people in the door. Uh, but what we found, right, is all we got to do is show them examples of emails that we've generated. And it's like, uh, you know, it's like a magic moment almost, right? Because you can see that these emails that we generated are clearly not templated, right? Like it's as if someone spent like five minutes personal, like studying this the profile, yeah. studying the business, thinking about, okay, I'm trying to sell X to this business. How should I position this email? Like it's the kind of stuff that I did as a salesperson in my 20s where I started, mm -hmm. where I'd kind of, I'd be reaching out. I worked in commercial real estate and I would be thinking about like, okay, I'm trying to lease this retail space and I'm reaching out to this restaurant. Why do they, why, like, why would they want to lease this space? And I have to sit there mm -hmm. and think about it for five or 10 minutes before I reach out to them. Exactly. Like personalization works. It's like such a well-studied thing in the marketing space and the sales space. The issue, like, like you said, is you really need to sit there and spend time thinking about it, right? Um, and that's essentially like what we attempted to solve, right? So it's getting to like personal, like getting to the point of personalized communication, but without the time saving. So we've got two types of customers, right? Ones who already personalize their communication and uh, those who are currently sending templated emails. For one, the, uh, KPI that moves is response rate. And for the other, the KPI that moves is like cost, right? Because uh, now they need to spend less time personalizing versus if you weren't personalizing at all, you're now right. like moving into better quality communication. Yeah. So what's the um? So what is the typical uh, at the end of the pilot? You know, they're seeing a increase in leads and response rates. Walk me through kind of what the typical outcome is. Yeah. No, I mean we're expecting our first results back from. Uh, like one of our customers essentially at the end of next week. So really looking forward to that. That customer, by the way, was so enamored with uh, the tech that they actually invested in us. One of our favorite <laughs> investors. Uh, it, you know, it, like that's the type of stuff that makes us like feel very happy about yeah. what we're doing. Well, yeah, that's uh, when you yeah. know you got something. I remember as a PM doing customer interviews and being out there um, and you're doing customer discovery and you're interviewing your persona, your target market and, and then you'd be like, okay, here's what I'm what we're working on. And you kind of walk them through the clickable prototype or whatever. And you knew you had something and it wasn't the first time out. This is like 30th, 40th, 50th time out. Like you said, you you probably pivoted a dozen times in YC. Um, it was kind of like, you, you know, you're kind of like weeks, if not months into this, uh, trying to figure out what this persona wants. And all of a sudden they're like, okay, yeah, I need this. Can I buy it today? Is this available? You know, and that was kind of like the, the the little story you had about, you know, your Y Combinator group, you know, fellow uh, cohort members saying, hey, can I buy this? I'll pay, I'll pay you for this right now. And that's when you know exactly. you got something. No, that's a wonderful that's like the feeling. aha moment. Yeah. Like it's, it's like the first taste of YC's motto, right, is, is make something people want, right? 
and it's 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 addicting if you as you <laughs> as you approach it right like, yeah uh, I, I'm in love with their whole philosophy around this. So. Yeah, and that's what's so great about technology generally, right, is we're basically building things to solve human problems uh, for a profit, mm -hmm. right? And exactly. um, it's really fulfilling, actually, to solve someone's problem, whatever, what, whatever it is, right? And in this case, yeah. I mean, sales is a slog. It's a slog, and it's painful, right? Because you're, you're, you're getting punched in the face over and over again, and you're getting rejected, and it's hard. And along com comes a platform like Hypermount. It's like, hey, I can, I can alleviate some of that burden for you and get you in front of the right people with the right message, like, like magic, right? And it's just like magic, so, right? When we talk to salespeople, right, their favorite part of the job is building relationships, right? It's uh, like yeah. taking, like, it's building relationships with people. It's like talking to them, like getting to know them, understanding like who they are, what they want. And uh, like, Salespeople are people, people, right? Like they, they enjoy that type of thing. And the part that they hate is this first cold outreach step. Yeah. This is, this does not feel human. It does not need to be human, right? We want to let salespeople enjoy their job and get rid of like the, the tedium. Like this is the tedium that lets them focus on people who've responded because people have responded are interested. They're interested in building a relationship with you. Like that's where you as a salesperson can shine. So we're excited that uh, we're enabling them to do that. Yeah, it's so cool. Um, and then, yeah, so 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 you pivot in the program. Uh, you have a successful round coming out of the program. Now you're kind of now hitting some traction. Walk me through, like, I would love to, like, kind of shift gears and talk about the future of marketing, right? What, what's interesting, I've been around this marketing stuff and sales stuff for 15, 20 years now. Built a lot of MarTech, AdTech, you know, lots of AI-powered stuff in the first gen. I was at Rocket Fuel back in the day, as you know. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, you've spoken at some of these AI for marketers events and stuff like that. What do you think is the future of marketing? Is it, you know, just a bunch of AIs talking to other AIs, setting up meetings for humans? Like, what's the end game here? <laughs> yeah, I yeah, know. At a certain point, right? Like, I think most of the uh, functionality in business that is time consuming or tedious will get automated away. Um, and I think like B2B marketing is about to go through some massive changes, right? Yeah. Um, at least now when you still have humans on the other side of the inbox, right? If you've ever experienced like the magic of YouTube knowing exactly what to recommend to you or TikTok yeah. tapping you on their app for hours. Yeah. I think that's going to come to Can't market. look away. I, I watched this one yeah. recently where it was a bunch of cars running into a brick wall at 50 miles an hour. And how mm -hmm. they collapse. And it's just like, I can't look away. I just have to keep watching these cars run into this brick wall. Uh, <laughs> and the Ford Bronco completely just a little boxy Bronco. Just you would have died in that Bronco. There was just no way you would be alive. The thing just completely collapsed like a tin can. <laughs> like like you stomped oh, on a Pepsi can or something. Oh, man. I remember when, when Vine came out, right? It's like you wouldn't have never thought that like seven second videos could just like grab someone and keep their attention for oh remember for so all the vine mashups on youtube i'd lose like <laughs> i'd lose like me and my family would lose like an hour watching all the vine mashups from like five ten years ago it exactly like the first, it was like, like the first tiktok it's like they've cracked something in the human psyche uh that it, it's a little addicting right it's just yeah. they know exactly what type of thing you want to see and they give it to you uh <laughs> and I think like that that's like the the power of machine learning and also kind of the danger of machine learning. There's a lot of ethical dubiousness here. Uh but I think that's where marketing is headed uh for better or for worse. Yeah, so, so like I'm thinking about this, right? Because if companies like Hyperbound can can make this at scale hyper personalized customer discovery reach out work at scale, what's going to happen is there's going to have to be a, a equal AI automated response on the other end, right? Like if I'm getting these hyper personalized reach outs through email and through LinkedIn and through whatever, mm -hmm. uh, I might start having so many, I can't even reply to them all. Right. And yeah. so then you have to like use another AI to say, okay, here are my needs right now. Like, uh, and here's what, you know, talk to this AI, <laughs> answer these emails. No, seriously. Yeah. I think that's going to happen. Like AI is going to like, the way that we do business 
by email is kind of antiquated, All right? Um, it, it is a strange platform uh, that holds basically all of the value in B2B. And I think the inbox, as it appears, is going to change a lot. Yeah. Because uh, Well, especially with AI, now, like crawling my email yeah. and figuring out what do I actually need to pay attention to? You know, is this exactly. from a portfolio company or is this like an inbound from a random startup? I've, I don't know, right? And if it is, have them answer these questions and then decide if I should meet them or not based on the criteria that matters to me. And that's how I think about it as a VC. But like as a business, you might say, oh, okay, you're selling your accounting software. Um, I'm good. I'm happy with my accounting software. So I like, and I, my AI should know that over time and just like mm -hmm. decline those emails and archive them. Exactly. No, building an email response bot is actually a lot easier than it is to build a, uh, a outbound bot, like what we're doing essentially, yeah. right? Because yeah. when you're doing responses, all you have to do is categorize them into a certain number of buckets, decide which bucket it falls into, and then shoot off either canned or like a very programmatic response. Because right. if someone's reaching out to you with a sales email, you don't necessarily need to respond as a human. Right. I love this analogy that you have of everyone's uh, had this experience and not everyone because not I mean, we feel like everyone uses YouTube, but some people out there mm -hmm. that I've met in my family at family reunions or whatever, they're like, oh, no, I never use YouTube. But, you know, we 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 felt that somebody everybody's kind of felt that like, oh, this is perfect for me right now, you know, yeah. and, you know, email could be that right. This discovery, you know, almost like this. Yeah, the motion of trying to find the person and company that needs your thing right now. Mm -hmm. And this like perfectly timed email comes in. Hey, I know you're struggling with this and I have the perfect product for you, you know? <laughs> exactly. Like imagine knowing like which of your users based off of all of the data from every previous interaction you've had with a customer. Imagine knowing like which of your prospects is going to be like the one that will make your next, will sign your next deal. That's yeah. the type of power that machine learning has. And it's just not effectively been tapped into. And I think here's where like the magic of generative AI comes into marketing, right? So with previous like iterations of marketing, you're always just targeting a pre-created pool of content. So like some human has written the copy with some intent. And that intent is uh, not transparent to the targeting algorithm. The targeting algorithm then tries to assign it to someone and then figure out like, you know, whether it did well or not. Now with generative AI stepping in and actually creating the content, it knows the intent and it can establish causation. And it can establish if this intent is there, then this result appears. Mm. And that's going to be insanely powerful. I, I get that that's like, that's not exactly in the most layman's terms, right? But it's essentially about going one level beyond just targeting content and understanding why a piece of targeted content will work for someone. Yeah, that's amazing. So how did you end up in AI in the first place? You know, like mm -hmm. you're, you're obviously a very smart person. Um, walk us through kind of how you got interested in AI in the first place and what that, what's yeah, that origin story? This is a great question. So I went to... Like I'd say in my first year of, of like university is where I really fell into this AI trap. So I previously was an electrical engineer focused, focused student, right? So I had patented like one of my ideas uh, around essentially like I built a hybrid light bulb. This is a crazy like tangent story. Uh, oh, wow. But you know how like LED light bulbs put off a lot of heat? Like you'd think they put off a lot less heat than incandescent bulbs and they do. Uh, but they still get very, very hot, like especially the big ones and like uh, warehouses and stuff. They got huge heat sinks on the back. So I was thinking like, hey, that heat from this bulb existing in that space is actually like reducing the lifespan of the bulb because these electronics aren't meant to like stay this hot for this long. Right. So like, is there a way that we can just remove the heat from the system and convert it into electricity? So like there's thermoelectric generators that exist. So like I built technology that would take the heat from the bulb, turn it into electricity, 
And then through a really clever combination of like electronics convert it back into electricity that the light bulb itself could use just wow. for a second before switching back to mains power. So anyway, I, I was patenting that. That was the end of tangent. Um, and <laughs> it was such a pain. Like it's so expensive to get a patent. It's so expensive to know whether or not like to do a patent search. And attorneys here, like I got a love hate relationship with attorneys in this space uh, because they will charge you for a 40 hour patent search, even if they find the conflicting patent in like the first like 20 minutes, because, mm. you know, that, that's what you paid for. Uh, so I was working at a research lab at CMU that specialized in doing this patent search through natural language processing, right? Because let's say that, you know, we are able to flag something for you right away. Uh, that's going, that's like properly understanding this like patent legalese and uh, converting it into like numbers that the machine can understand to decide whether two patents conflict or not. Um, so I was working on this lab. I was working on like some really cutting edge natural language processing tech with them. And, you know, it was like a series of magic moments for me. I was like, wow, you know, like, the, like I, I did not realize that technology for this had progressed so far in the past, like, three or four years. Like this is when like BERT had come out. This is when like the, the field was changing of natural language processing, which eventually culminated in large language models. Uh, so yeah, I think that's where I got my start and I've just been hooked ever since. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. A really interesting story to how, you know, serendipitous encounters throughout our, our life will guide us. You know, you kind of look back and you, you can connect the dots, but Sometimes it's hard looking forward to connect the dots. Uh, speaking of uh, looking forward, like, uh -huh. you know, you're, you're involved in AI. You're seeing the impacts. Like, what do you think is, like the next five years looks like? We've, we've had some pretty interesting online encounters. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've written some articles on this that you, you commented on. You know, one thing, I, one trend I was looking at that I'd love to get your, your thoughts on are kind of the complexities of these um, generative AI models, right? I think... One thing I was looking at is they they they're increasing in complexity about 10x, like an order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. um, that means you know basically the parameters of the model, the interconnectivity of the model, and and things like that. Do you feel like this continues, um, and we just get bigger and bigger models, or do you, have we hit like a wall of complexity and it makes sense to sort of get more vertical, verticalized? Yeah, no, like this is a very interesting question, right? I think that every time you resort to improving the performance of a ML model by just ranking up, like, you know, just like notching up the complexity, just going, uh, you know, like, give it more, you know, uh, compute, just more data, like it'll, it'll get there. Like, that's how you know you've hit the dead end in uh, that approach for, you know, something like artificial general intelligence. But this comes with a caveat, right? Like, the model will continue to get better just at like an exponentially worse rate. So like as you exponentially increase uh, the amount of parameters, like you might still see like a linear or just sublinear uh, improvement in performance. I don't think that's exactly what autoregressive LLMs are going through at the moment. Right. So the complexity is increasing exponentially. Uh, like I think, I forget what the like exact numbers are. Maybe you, you remember this, but like GPT-4 is, is like orders of magnitude larger than GPT-3. It's not just like slightly more. Yeah, it's like 100 X uh, or something. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like, obviously that's got to stop somewhere. Like they're already running out of GPUs. Uh, right. <laughs> to, At some point the inference just, it, it, the inference call takes five minutes to process and it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's too long. I don't know. I, I don't know how quantum computers work. Maybe that's the answer, but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it appears like, I, I think I, the brain yeah. has some quantum. Uh, it takes advantage of some quantum effects. Have you heard this? Oh, no, I haven't heard this. this yeah, I, I didn't. I don't know much about it, but yeah, I kind of heard it in some video or podcast I watched, um, oh. which kind of makes sense, right? It's like we the emergent yeah. properties of intelligence from this biological substrate of you know what what is it a hundred hundred billion hundred billion neurons in our brain, something like that. Anyway. Hmm. Um, I mean, if any, it, it, you know, if anything is going to happen, it's we're, we'll keep doubling the performance of these 
models and the capabilities. What do you think the next five years holds? Are we all just going to have AI assistants doing most of the work for us? Or I think AI is going to be essentially over the next five years, right? It's going to be a co-pilot for most of your duties. And it gets just better and better and better over time. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of like tedious tasks that human creativity is not like well, we're essentially taking someone who's capable of a lot and putting them through something that you know a robot could do right uh, and I think a lot of those like tasks will get automated away, and there's a lot of implications here, right like is this going to create more? employment opportunity in other fields mm. and likely will mm -hmm. but what are those other fields like there's a lot of equity concerns here like do you now need an education in ai before you can participate like is this taking away right. you know yeah so well it's, there's, it's, there's it, so much you here. know like you think back a couple hundred years ago most of us were working on farms right and along come these machines and you know fact like we're like we can't even imagine what we would do if we weren't farming you know yeah like what? What do we do, right? And factories came along, and we were working factories, and then a lot of that stuff got automated. And we're like, what? What will we do? Like, you know, now now there's machines building everything. You know? Oh yeah, I personally think the most interesting ethical consequences are going to come from the countries that are currently facing like population collapse problems. Like, I think. Uh, I think it's China, Japan, Korea, right, where the fertility rate is really low, um, where like the majority of population is going to be like elderly in around like 50 years yeah. or so. I think they're going to have like they're going to be the first ones to really contend with the ethical consequences of AI. Mm. And uh, I can only hope it goes well. Yeah. T t uh, tell us more about the ethical. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So. I got to, to ask Sam Altman about this, actually, uh, when he came to Y Combinator to speak. And what he told me, like, really stuck with me. It's that, like, you can't actually solve ethics properly for, like, AI because everyone has such a different definition of ethics that it's, like, you're never going to make everyone happy. So you need to, like, default down to, to something. And, and what is that something, right? Like, I personally think that there's a lot of work um, that can go into both the observability and explainability of these models to potentially help set some of these guardrails over time. Uh, but it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you, like, do you feel like we're heading towards a hard takeoff AI scenario or a slow takeoff? Uh, definitely slow takeoff. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm... Like, I know people, like, saw LLMs and were like, wow, this is so much better than what we've, what we've had before, right? Yeah. Uh, like, well, it's because like, it got 10x you know, better, changing. right? Yeah, like, G GPT 3.5 was 10x better than 3, and 4 is probably 10x better than 3.5. Uh, but, you know, exactly. I, think, I think we're hitting the, the GPU wall, like you, like you said. Like, the inference time, that's probably why they haven't released uh, version 5 yet, is it's probably taking two minutes to inference. You know, and they're like, Ugh, what did, you know, they have this model complexity barrier with, with the current hardware, right? Like the same thing happened with reinforcement learning. The same thing happened with deep learning and neural networks. It's just like these architectures like ride a wave and then they, they typically hit like uh, some type of wall. And yeah. that's fine. It just means that we're, we're onto the... Next architecture, that's a combination of it's these kind of two. Like an, it's kind of like an S-curve, right? Overlapping S-curves. Yeah. Like you kind of you hit this like wall. And this has been happening in technology for over 100 years, right? Look at, you know, vacuum tubes kind of hit a wall and then it was transistors and they kind of hit a wall. And then yep. it, it just kind of, yeah, we keep finding new, new ways to expand our capabilities. Um, tell us about your semi-supervised learning uh, experience and you know, maybe tell the audience what that is. I know what it is, but <laughs> explain yeah, what that yeah. is and why it's important and kind of your experience in that. This stuff is super interesting. I find it fascinating. Uh, but let's see, like, if I can, like, it, it took me, like, months to onboard into this space just because of, like, 
yeah. how, how ridiculous the complexity is. So let me just like try to walk through maybe maybe an example. Yeah. And hopefully, uh, hopefully that'll help illustrate what we're doing. So I was working on semi-supervised learning on meta ads, right? Uh, and what semi-supervised learning is at the highest level, just to give the tiniest bit of context, is say that you have a like gigantic pool of data and for 20% of them, you know like what the labels are for that data. So you know that 20% of them I should classify as you know apples, bananas, or oranges. The remaining 80%, you just have a picture of the fruit and you don't know like what the actual label is. Uh, so what you could do is do supervised learning on the 20% and just throw away the other 80% of the data. And that might work. Like you might get sufficient results for your use case. Uh, but Meta just has access to so much data that's unlabeled because of um, something called ATT. So Apple essentially placed recent restrictions on third-party cookies and tracking. Uh, so it's really hard for Meta ads to know whether like a ad that they put out converted the way that they wanted, right? Like whether yeah. you know someone, yeah, like clicked on it, bought the product, all those things. So let's say that you've served like a hundred million ads in like the past couple hours, right? For 40% of those ads, you actually do have the tracking that tells you whether or not like the user bought the item. For the remaining 60%, you don't have anything. Um, so you can, to train a model to predict whether a user is going to purchase a product after seeing the ad, you could just use the 40% of the data, but you'd rather use all of it in some way. So the semi-supervised learning that I was using would go one step beyond and predict, like build another model that would create fake labels for uh, the data that you know was mm. not um, like labeled, and then use all of that data to train a predictor. And you might just assume like, hey, like if I create fake labels from the data that like from a classifier that's trained on just the forty percent, it can't be any more accurate than that original forty percent. Um, and you, you'll be right, right? The actual training accuracy of the overall model will be lower uh, than the training accuracy of the original model on just that 40% of the data. Um, but the subtle nuance here is that the performance time, like the actual performance of this model in the real world of the um, semi-supervised model, as opposed to the supervised model is gonna be better because of something called like generalization. So the model has a better understanding of the data distributions of the real world because you literally gave it more data. You gave it the 100% instead of the right. 40%. So it generalizes to something better, even though the actual training time performance is worse. It's a little nuanced and yeah. like very, very hard to like understand from the first uh, yeah. explanation of it. Like even I was quite confused. The Ignite at first. podcast uh, just got really technical, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to go back. I want to circle back to the guardrails uh, topic, yeah, right? Yeah. I think that's really important to you. Um, what do you think those guardrails look like uh, for AI, you know, to keep it safe and equitable for, uh, for society? Yeah. Okay. So this is a great question. There's two types of guardrailing that's possible. One is uh, what typically like a lay person would think of as guardrails is you look at the output of the algorithm and then you decide whether or not this was an appropriate output, like whether it's like a biased output, whether it's fair, mm -hmm. like, and then you like say yes or no. Um, and then maybe you improve the algorithm over time by like giving it a bunch of, yeah. uh, of like the ethics police is sitting like, in. It's almost like, like parenting a child, right? In a way, like, you know, <laughs> I've had some weird situations where, you know, my kids as a joke would make my daughter yell a racist slur. And it was like, it was oh, like no. a terrible joke, um, right in the middle of some square in Europe. And I'm like, oh, we, we, we can't say that like out loud. And, um, you know, they thought it was funny because my daughter's seven and she doesn't know any better. I think she was six at the mm -hmm. time. And, you know, you're like, oh, that's, that's racist. You can't say that. You can't, you know. And, um, and so we're kind of almost doing the same thing with, with our AIs, right? We're kind of saying, hey, our ideals don't match your outputs. You know, and, and don't do like we're slapping the AI on the hand, so to speak, and, and kind of giving it the reinforcement, uh, you know, learning 
like a parent yeah, would. No, it's parenting. It's parenting. It's parenting in the AI. It's exactly yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one, right? I wonder if like, you can the... completely remove the bias in the AI, right? Because if it's trained on humanity, humans are racist, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, we are prejudiced, right? And not all of us, you know, ideally some of us aren't and some of us are extremely, right? But there's like that mm-hmm. bell curve to everything, right? In society. And so I, I think if you kind of step back and you go, okay, we don't want racist AI, or, right? Or, or biased AI, right? How uh-huh. do you, like, I think ideally, I think people would, would step back and objectively agree to that. Yeah, I think that's a, a good a good ideal, moralistically, right? It is, it is. But the thing is, everyone has different definitions of bias, right? which is what's so hard to contend with. And at the end of the day, right, every human has different definitions right. of bias. So you just end up with the bias of the teacher AI that's training the student AI. Uh, the student AI learns the same biases of the teacher AI, and then you're now just back to square one. Uh, so... Ideally, you have multiple teacher models, like helping this one student model, uh, which is similar to the experience that people go through, right? You don't just have one person telling you what's right and wrong. You have society as a whole. Um, So yeah, there's a lot of- Because there's always like extremists out there, right? And is there Mm -hmm. there this possibility that, you know, somebody can take something like Llama 2, uh, the open source Facebook meta model, and train it to do racist rants and and do mm-hmm. bad things right oh or did they build yeah, yeah. yeah uh the thing is like it's so easy to make ai behave in a biased fashion yeah just because machine learning in general is inherently like disposed towards finding like local minima to solutions right and like i'll tie that back to this in a second but what that means is it's just trying to optimize its way towards like minimizing some mathematical equation and yeah it will find solutions yeah, like, to this gr- mathematical like gradient equation. descent right you're just kind of trying to find yeah, yeah. where the the second derivative is you know going to zero or whatever or going to one and if you're if you give it the access access to the internet right and say i want you to learn how the english language works and put together hmm. like sentences like right. you know that that are comprehensible in the English language it's just going to turn out super racist and biased because that's what like the majority of the content that it has access to are are going to look like or it has access um, to some of it right you know and mm-hmm. or i mean it has access to all of it but not all of it is biased and racist right and so mm-hmm. you know i i feel like anthropomorphizing a little bit but you know, AI is like a child of humanity, right? It's it's an invention. And I wonder if it will be better than its parents, you know? Mm. I, think I think humans I think, have the tendency yeah. to be better than their parents uh, yeah. at certain things. But I think that that typically doesn't happen with AI because it doesn't, like, the value function for a human is changing all the time it's not you can imagine there's a couple hundred iq parents right average like average iq is 100 and they Uh give birth to like a 200 iq a child you know that 200 Mm -hmm. iq child's not gonna be like his parents or or, or her parents right exactly and that's kind of what's happening right now is we're giving birth to this like super intelligent thing or series of things We'll probably all have like our own personal AIs running on our hardware and stuff or in our phones or whatever, or in the cloud somewhere. And it, you know, you think about it, it will probably make us a better, better society. Mm-hmm. I, I right? Because now we have the super intelligent child that's way smarter than us. I think the breaks down, yeah. breaks down just a little bit. And, and here's why, right? It's like... Yeah. The, the way that AI currently at least learns, right, most of these AGI things is that they're still like optimizing something. So if you want to optimize to be ethical and to be unbiased, you need to specify that somehow. Yeah. So it's well, the I wonder, creator though, of the like, system. I wonder if like if you build self-referential recurring feedback learning loops into mm. AI, 
Yeah. And it could kind of reason through its actions. Like you said earlier, I think AI is, you know, has some sort of reasoning abilities, right? Talk, talk us through that. Like, you know more about this stuff than I do. You know, would a super, like a super intelligent 99 percentile IQ and uh, AI be able to reason automatically? Like, maybe it's not good moralistically to, is moralistically even a word? Maybe it's not good for me to behave that way. Like, yeah, like we were can, talking. Can AI yeah. be more ethical than its creators? Can AI be more ethical and and, and have more better morals than us? Can it no, reason I mean, through the things? Right? Yeah, because it has such deep. Imagine having the intellectual firepower of like Socrates or Plato or something or Aristotle, but times ten, and it can reason through all the the moral judgments, um, in a super intelligent way. Like one of the things I think about is, you know. And help the audience under me and the audience understand this. Um, you know the way these large language models work is it's like a thousand dimensional space, right? So it mm -hmm. kind of considers the word love, and then it kind of considers all the ways that love can interrelate to every other word in the language, and then how it relates. Uh, that so the next round, so you could have like a thousand different definitions of love. It probably mm -hmm. knows definitions of love that we don't know, or maybe it's yeah. very esoteric. So, like, let, let me try to give a little bit of insight into this. But large language models essentially don't reason. In fact, capital R reasoning is is what Sam Altman calls it. But like reasoning that doesn't just appear like reasoning, but is like actual multi-stage thinking, as far as I know, has not been achieved by any AI system. And that's where, like, uh, the whole analogy between, like, humans and AI, at least currently, breaks down. Yeah. Um, it's because AI appears to reason, but it's not actually. Mm. And th the reason for that is is similar to that, like, uh, embedding space thing that you were mentioning, right? Is, let's say that I uh, have, like, you know, a thousand words, uh, right? And I need, like, you know, like, let's say about Socrates' teachings. And I need to come up with the the next teaching in this space, right? Yeah. Like, and I have access to all the information in the world that I want, and I have this prompt. Yeah. Um, what AI is doing is just taking this prompt up and throwing it into this, like, hundreds of thousands of dimensional space. Yeah. And, like, what that means is, like, really hard to explain outside of ML terms. Let's see if I can come up with a good analogy. It's almost it's like of... it's almost like the the hundreds of thousands of weightings of all the possibilities of the combinations, right? Exactly. And but it's sort of coming all... up based on the reinforcement training that it occurred back in the lab. It's basically saying, "Oh, okay, you want uh, Plato to comment on Eminem's rap songs," and so it kind of just mashes all that into a multi-dimensional space. Now you have Plato analyzing Eminem. Yeah. <laughs> Something ridiculous uh, like that. Like the, the multidimensional <laughs> space is like carefully constructed. Uh, like the architecture of what that space is supposed to look like is carefully constructed by human engineers, right? Yeah. But like what that like what each item in the space actually ends up looking like is determined by the numbers that the model learns over time. Right. So that's a little bit about how, how like embeddings work, but it takes that embedding and then it uses it uh, in like um, a fixed length process, right? So it's not reasoning because reasoning can take like arbitrary number of steps. It's using like a fixed length process to then take that and then spit out the next thing. So for example, if solving a problem takes more than uh, the number of fixed length steps that exist in a large language model, it will never be able to answer the question. Like even from like an information theory perspective, no matter how much, like how many parameters you use, like how well you like train this model, it'll never be able to answer the question. Um, mm. And that's like a fundamental problem that AI has that uh, humans don't. Because humans can just continue to think when they, like humans know when they haven't solved it, they can continue to think. But right. AI doesn't know when it hasn't solved something because it's just following like a fixed like That's path. a hallucination problem, right? Because it doesn't have yeah. this like self-referential consciousness loop that we have where we're kind of like, 
is that right? Does that sound right? The, you know, does that make sense? It's like the common sense. It's like, oh yeah, that that company exited for a billion dollars, and you look it up. It's like, no, it didn't. <laughs> exactly. well, that's no, that's kind of what you want to hear, up. though, right? That's the weighted multidimensional yeah. space of what you want to hear. Um, you know what I found find super interesting in, in all this is, you know, humans can't think in that you know hundred thousand dimensional space, right? Mm-hmm. That's what's really interesting. Is it? It's it's almost like a new kind of intelligence that we've invented that thinks in a different way than us, you know, or yeah. at, le- or at no, least, I mean, I... or at least generates things like, you know, we generate music or language or text and it does that in a different way than us, you know, which is really interesting. I think, I think that it's a very interesting philosophical argument because yeah. the brain also works in, in terms of these like gigantic state spaces. Cause yeah. in reality, neurons are just ones and zeros. Right. Uh, but we, our consciousness allows us to explain steps of the process. Right. Versus like... Yeah, calculate uh, a little bit, analyze, assess. Calculate mm-hmm. a little bit, analyze, assess. Yeah, there's like steps to it. Yeah. Versus like AI is like literally, here is the answer. Right. It's a complete black box. There's no transparency, especially with autoaggressive LLMs, like the current yeah. fundamental technology behind like GPT, right? It's, there, there's no explanation. If you ask ChatGPT to explain itself, it is not, in fact, explaining itself. <laughs> it is looking at the input and the output and then hallucinating another reason as to why it thought the way that it did. Yeah. So fast. It's not actually looking yeah. into like what it was thinking about. So that's a weird <laughs> fact. <laughs> well, um, let's, let's switch to, to the rapid fire round. Um, oh, sure. What's the, what's the most impactful book uh, that you've ever read? There is um, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. He was a hostage negotiator uh, working for the FBI. Yeah. Like for someone who, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, what an interesting I, book. I, 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 I read it a long time ago. Have you read uh, it? Yeah. Yeah. No, like he's a great storyteller, first off. Like excellent storytelling throughout the book. Uh, but there are so many like human psyche related like quirks in there that are just yeah. uh, like really cool to hear about. Like I would recommend, especially anyone who is getting into sales or anyone who is getting into any like person facing role. It's uh it's a must read. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a really good book. Uh, if you could have dinner with any, th- uh, any three people dead or alive, who would they be? Uh, three of my customers, right? Uh, <laughs> Spoken like a true founder, uh, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, in reality, you know, my answer to this changes every day. Um, like, currently, if, if you asked me, like, a, a few weeks ago, like, I was very fortunate to be able to, like, ask questions to both, like, Jan LeCun and Sam Altman yeah. at the same time. I kind of just want to, like, listen in on a conversation between them. Like, I think that would be really cool. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. Ask ChatGPT to make a conversation between them. <laughs> honestly with the amount of media that they both have out there right, about yeah. their like press friends it might and all, all the papers right. and all the stuff they've written i mean yeah exactly yeah i don't know do you have a good answer to that one who, who are the three people that you would like to, oh, uh, to hear from you flipped the you you've now taken the ignite mirror and <laughs> shined it back at me um oh, you put me on the spot so ray kurzweil big big fan of okay. his you know, Singularity is near uh, one of the more impactful books I've ever read. Um, ooh, uh, probably like the Buddha, like Siddhartha mm-hmm. Gautama, like literally the Buddha. I think that would be really amazing. Um, we'd have to get a translator probably, I guess. But um, oh, Carl Sagan, maybe uh, from ooh. a science perspective. Yeah, just yeah. amazing, uh, you know, book, the contact, the movie, the you know, the cosmos, the show, I mean, just, just a really amazing gem of a human being. Hmm. Yeah. That's nice. Maybe you'll, you'll get them all on the podcast one day, just yeah. simulated through AI. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's a, what's a hidden talent that you have that nobody knows about? Oh, okay. So I do sing. Oh, wow. But before you ask, I've got a rule about not singing on podcasts. So yeah, no, that's uh, awesome. <laughs> But yeah, I've done acapella for a long time. Oh, uh, wow. It's like, a, yeah, it's a, something that I, I really enjoy. That's really yeah. cool. Okay, maybe on the, the, the next podcast. Um, 
Uh, speaking of podcasts, what's a podcast that you think everyone should listen to? Well, definitely, like, the podcast that I've spent the most time listening to easily is Freakonomics. Yeah. Like, I think there was this, like, one episode about, like, the economics of marriage that they put out that was, like, so, like, wow. left field. But, like, it made so much sense at the same time. I'd, yeah, definitely would go check it out. That's amazing. I was just watching a, a talk from the All In podcast, the, the summit they had, and somebody was giving a talk on the decline of marriage rates and, and why that um, – it's a luxury idea is what it, how he phrased it. He's a sociologist and it's a really interesting podcast because he's basically saying that it's a luxury idea because it won't impact you as much as poor people. Like if you're a rich person and you're, you're not married or you have ch children out of wedlock, not a big deal for you. But mm -hmm. if you're poor, it's a huge deal. So it's more of a class. Yeah. It's a class thing. It's a luxury idea. I, I found it. I found the talk really, really interesting. And I listen to Freakonomics all the time. It's, it's great. Mm. Uh, what's the best advice you ever received? Oh, okay. So one of the things that uh, my dad, like my dad's been through some tough times, right? And he's always told me that like maintaining a routine, staying disciplined, right? Is, is how uh, you like get through those times, right? Yeah. And it's how you alleviate your stress. It's how you like, you know, assure yourself of, uh, you know, of, of the, of your ability to handle things. And I, I seriously cannot second that more. You know, if like you're feeling like now is a downtime in life, it's that just means it's time to get into routine and get yourself back into step. So, yeah, that's interesting. I just got back from a, a long trip in Europe and the routine became going from city to city on trains, planes and automobiles. And mm. it, it felt like I was just so happy to get home. Right. And ha get back into my routine. Um, exactly. Just have, you know, have my little exercise machine and go for my little walk that I do. And yeah, you got to get it's the little things. Yeah. It, it's not even like, it's like making sure you drink like a whole cup of water in the morning when you wake up or like folding your, your sheet. Like those are the things that like seem to have the biggest impact. Yeah. I really don't understand how it works. I don't know. Maybe you feel the same way, but no, you got to have that routine. Right. Um, yeah. Which is weird with all this technological unemployment coming. Uh, mm -hmm. there's a, there'll be a big, you know, so many people define themselves by what they do for, for work. And when your job gets automated, uh, you know, you're going to have to find a new routine, right? And that's, it's, yeah. it's a dangerous, right? Kind of purgatory situation where you haven't quite grounded yourself in your, in your new thing. Um, what, whatever that new thing is. Um, so some people mm -hmm. can succumb to addiction problems and depression and, and things like that. So that would be very interesting to watch in the next five to 10 years. Um, Agreed. What's your current obsession? TV, hobby? So this is really funny. Uh, my co-founder and I were living together over the summer when uh, we were in Y Combinator, right? And like multiple times, we would like dream about emails. Like I would dream about the algorithm that we're making. Like, you know, we're, we're like living and breathing the startup, right? Like, we're working like 20 hours a day sometimes. So I would like legitimately dream about like emails and customer feedback. And I was like, oh. um, <laughs> you know, outside of, outside of work, you can find me in the rock climbing gym. Oh, nice. I think that's like a late obsession of mine. Um, really, it's like a lot of yeah. puzzle solving, really. It's like, yeah, my son, course, like, my son like, loves to climb. Yeah, that's exactly oh, how he describes awesome. it. Like, you're trying to solve this puzzle of, you know, getting across the wall, right? And it's really like mentally refreshing, I would say. Like, you're really putting in like your whole mental effort into doing something. Yeah, you're in the, you, and you it have just to like be takes your mind off. Stake, otherwise, you fall off the wall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you get some adrenaline too, like uh, out of it. I think it's great. You probably so. watched Valley Uprising, the Yosemite climbing. There's a couple on Netflix. Uh, Valley Uprising. Ooh. Um, it's on Netflix. Really good movie about the free climbers. And then there's like Solo or Free Solo. The free solo Alex about Hummel. the guys yeah. that you know, climb El Cap, El Cap in you know, four hours, five hours. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, like uh, it's cool but terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, last question: If you weren't doing uh, hyperbound, what would you be doing? So there's two ways I'd answer this, right? Like one is me in my current state, but like one if I just had all the money in the world and I was just you know doing something. So. In my current state, right, I just need to be solving a hard problem to keep myself entertained. 
Yeah. I feel like I just don't do my best work if I'm solving something that is like menial. Kind of like harkens yeah. back to me sending out those personalized emails. Like I get so much more yeah. tired. Too menial. Easy Too tasks. menial. Yeah. Yeah. No, seriously. Like even though I'm working a lot now, mm -hmm. I still wake up every day feeling refreshed and happy about it. Uh, yeah. Because it's something I like legitimately care about. So. If I wasn't working on Hyperbound, I think I'd be doing another startup, right? Because like finding out what customers want and addressing it is kind of a big deal. Uh, you know, to make yeah. something people want. But um, if I had like all I the money that. in the world, if I had all the money in the world, right, and I was just solving something, it would go into studying like observability and explainability mm. of like artificial intelligence models and seeing yeah. like how either internally or externally can we police like AI and you know, enforce some ethical standards. So I think that's where I would, I would like to be if uh, I was essentially retired. Uh, so. Well, this was uh, such an amazing conversation. Tell the audience how to get in touch with Hyperbound uh, if, if they're interested in piloting your software. Yeah, absolutely. So you can head over to hyperbound.ai and uh, fill out the wait list there. And if you're really, really interested mm -hmm. and uh, you, can't, you can't make yourself wait on the wait list, reach out to founders at hyperbound.ai. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Atul. This was an amazing conversation. Brian, likewise, I'm very happy you had me on.